All right, good evening, everyone. Uh, as you know, we're going to be looking at the book of Haggai tonight. So it's pretty easy to find. Just go to, go to Matthew and go back three books, Malachi, Zechariah, and then Haggai. This block is the block of the three minor prophets. And again, uh, they're considered the post-exilic prophets. Pastor Terry shared that when he went through the book of Zechariah several weeks ago. These prophets were preaching to the remnant of Jews that were released from Babylonian captivity. And they were released for the purpose of returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And I'd like to start this evening by asking a question. It's a question I'd like you to be considering as we walk through this short, uh, this short book from the prophet Haggai. And the question I'd like you to consider is, what is the book of Haggai about? And I know some of you are saying, well, isn't that your job, Chris? Right? Haven't you been studying it for a few weeks trying to discern that very point? What is the book about? But I think it'd be helpful um, if you just think about that question as we go through it. What is, what is the book of Haggai about? Uh, it's, it's, it's relevant in its timeless truths, but it also helps us tie together the Old and the New Testaments. So as I get started, let's, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time this evening to come, to be, uh, to be encouraged by each one, to, to listen to the testimonies of how we, how we uh, push the world aside, Lord, as much as possible, Lord, how we fill your mind, fill our minds with, with your word, fill our hearts with your word, Lord, that it is our desire, Lord, and we know that we need your Spirit's help in that. We pray, Lord, this night, even as we look at your word, that your spirit would work in us, uh, that you've opened our eyes to the truths of your word. Let it be your words, Lord. Let it be your message. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You might have noticed I, I titled the message, Faith in the Promises of God. And I love the definition of faith that is provided for us in Hebrews, right? We know it. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of of things not seen. True saving faith provides assurance and conviction. We could say the insurance is the absolute guarantee in God's promises. And the conviction of things that we simply can't see right now, that's faith. We're simply called by faith to believe, to believe in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And more impo almost importantly, is to believe in God's explanation of why these events happened. Believe that God himself came and offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice for sins. Believe that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise from God himself. And we ought to be encouraged, and for that matter, motivated by these promises. And Haggai was commissioned by God to do just that, to deliver a message of encouragement and motivation in the promises of God. With the idea of the bigger picture of Scripture, I thought it would be good to go back and look at the book of Ezra, which is where this begins. And I know it's a bit of a Bible study. We've, we found Haggai. Now we're going to go find Ezra. Uh, but it's Samuel's, First Kings, Chronicles, and then Ezra. So if you would, let's go back and take a look at the book of Ezra.
Give me a minute to get there. The Jews had obviously been in captivity in Babylon for a number of years. I think about 66 years at this point, 66, 68 years at this point. And starting in verse 1, we read, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. I'll stop right there just for a second. Pretty quickly, we see who's in control here, right? We live in a world with a lot of people talking about politics, a lot of people concerned about the governments, right? God's in control, right? The people are going to do what, they, what God wants them to do, right? And he's in control here. Cyrus thinks he's the one in control, but it's not, it's God. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord... The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And every survivor of whatever place he may live, let him... let. The men of that place support him with silver and gold and goods and cattle and together the free will offering for the house of which God, which is in Jerusalem. So we see that Cyrus sets this decree for the Jews to be returned to, to rebuild the temple. Right? Uh, in chapter 2, we see a list. The Jews are very good at keeping records. We see the list of all those that returned. It wasn't that large of a group. It was really only around 50,000 people that returned. And then in chapter 3, it says, Now, when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings onto it, on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. So they set up the altar. Now if you get down to verse 8, we see the beginning of the temple. Verse 8 says, Now in the second year, so they've been there for two years now, Second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, Je and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. And it doesn't take long for the difficulties to set in, right? Because we know they do come. So moving over to chapter 4, it says, And when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord of Israel, Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers of the households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we've been sacrificing to him since the days of Esharon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua, 
And the rest of the heads of the fathers of the household of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel. A king, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counsels against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they were frustrated. They, 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 the people of the land were pushing back against them. And if you go over to verse 24, that same chapter, chapter 4, verse 24, it says that then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. And it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Chapter 5, when the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah in Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So here we are. We have recorded in the book of Ezra uh, the return back to Jerusalem, uh, the frustration that they had, the fact that the building of the temple had stopped. And then Ezra, uh, Ezra records the names of Haggai and Zechariah uh, as the prophets that got things moving again. And obviously, by God's grace, he gave us the books of Haggai and Zechariah. So turn now back to the book of Haggai, and we'll look at what's happening. When we look at this book of Haggai, it's a short book. It's only 38 verses. It covers a span of four months. So Haggai may have prophesied more. We don't know. But what he had written down was four months from the start to the finish. The, and there's, a number, there's five oracles or five words from the Lord that are recorded here. Chapter 1 essentially is the first two. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. So that's what I'll start. I'll start by reading the first 15 verses, and then we'll look at them. So it says, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in the paneled houses, while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I, I, and I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. 
Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius. So back in verse 1, we see the dates of the prophecy. It's, it, this is the most precisely dated prophecy. It's the second year of Darius the king on the first day of the sixth month. This would be August 29th of 520 B.C. Very precisely dated. Haggai uses the reference of the kingship of Darius, who's a pagan king, because at this time there is no king in Israel. So we use Darius as the reference. And we're also introduced to the three main characters, if you will. We met first, that we met first in Ezra. Haggai, God's prophet, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah. So Zerubbabel was the civil leader appointed by the Persian government. Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And in verse 2, we begin to see the problem as to why the building of the temple was stalled. Verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The people are in a sense in, in a sense saying, yeah, temple needs to be rebuilt at some point. We'll get around to it, but not yet. The specific reasons why they're saying not yet are not given. We can only, we can only speculate. You can hear them saying, times have been kind of hard. We don't have the resources to build a temple. I mean, Solomon had so much wealth and power. We don't have any of that. It takes so much effort just to take care of our families. So at some point, we'll start again to rebuild the temple, but not yet. It's just not the right time to rebuild. Now we get to hear things from God's perspective. Verse 4. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Apparently you think the time is good to be building some decent housing for yourself, some paneled houses, but it's just not time, it's just not the right time to build the Lord's house. God is exposing the situation for what it truly is. They are being lethargic about rebuilding God's house. They have no real motivation. They're more concerned about taking care of their needs first, their own self-interest, ahead of God's purposes and his desires. I want to take a minute just to think about the temple. We don't have a temple right? Temple worship is essentially foreign to us, except for what we read about. So why is it so vital for the Jewish people to have a temple? So vital, in fact, that God is holding them accountable for not rebuilding it. There are two primary reasons. One, the first is the temple and the tabernacle before that was the manifestation of God's presence here on earth. It's the place where God dwelt with his people. That's one reason. Second, it was God's ordained place of sacrifice for the covering of sins. 
Without a sacrifice for sin, the people were remaining in their sin. So for 70 years, there had been no temple, no place for God to manifest his glory. And as important, there had been no place for the, for the atonement of their sins. We know that Christ died once for all, that our sins were atoned for on the cross. But that is not the way it was for these people. Right? The temple was essential. It was being ignored and they didn't care. So what does God say? Verse 5. He says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm. He who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Consider your ways. God is saying you need to stop and reflect on what has been happening in your lives. Proverbs 21, 29 says the upright considers his ways. You need to look back over the last few years and have a heartfelt look at what has been happening. And this is a faithful remnant. They would have been expected to understand the covenant blessings and cursings that are seen in Deuteronomy. And we're not going to turn there, but just listen to what, listen to what Moses had to say in Deuteronomy 28. If you would diligently obey the Lord your God, be, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you. And he lists all the covenant blessings. But if they do not obey the Lord their God, they can expect cursings instead of blessings. So what's happening? Move over to, to verse 9. What's happening is you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you, bring it, when you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? Declares the little post. Because my house which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and all the labor of your hands. So who's behind their struggles? Obviously, it's God. He says, you bring it home, and I blow it away. Why? Because my house lies desolate. While you run to yours. They run. They're eager to take care of their desires, but are not concerned with God's. So what's the implication in this for us? When times are high, when, when difficulties come, is it because God's chastening us the way he was doing to the people of Haggai's day? Not necessarily, right? We know that God chastens those whom he loves. Proverbs 3.12, for whom the Lord loves, he reproves. 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we can't say that just because times are hard is because God is chasing us for being disobedient. But at the very least, it's a good time to reflect and see where God is in our lives. Is he primary or is he secondary? Are we giving him first priority or have we allowed ourselves to be caught up in the trap of being too busy? I will tell you that just those considerations lay heavy on my heart. So look back at verse 6 for a moment. God said in verse 6, Consider your ways. He wanted them to look backwards and analyze what had been taking place. In verse 7, he again says, consider your ways. 
Here God is saying, based on what I have just shared with you, consider your ways and plan on what you are going to start doing. Begin to look forward at what needs to be done. The people are given three imperatives. Go, bring, build. Verse 8, go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple. The reason why God is commanding this might not have been the reason they expected. They may have thought that if they actually went ahead and started the building project again, that God would be happy with their efforts and he'd just start blessing them. They may have thought it was all about them. But what reason does God give for his purpose in rebuilding the temple? Verse we'll 8 again, it says, go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple. Why? That I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. They were to obey for the purpose of bringing God glory. That is what he wants, and that is what he deserves. God blessed them first, and then expected obedience. He released them from captivity, right, blessing, and then looked for obedience. This is always the message of the gospel, right? God loved us before we loved him. First John, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5. In light of these truths, how are we to live? How were the people of Haggai's day to live? Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. What things? Verse 32, those things which your heavenly Father knows you need. Matthew 6, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether then you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This has always been God's desire, and it certainly was for the Jews in Haggai's day. So what happened after, the, after Haggai exhorted them? Verse 12, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Now, what we see here is true and fruitful repentance. This was a very rare event. In Amos, we saw the prophet spoke, and no one listened and they were dragged off to Babylon in judgment. But that's not what happens here. Here Haggai spoke the words of the Lord, and the people obeyed. There was a complete change in heart. There was a change in heart in Zerubbabel, a change in Joshua, and a change in the remnant of the people. They obeyed from the heart and showed reverence for the Lord. And we also see a change in the description of the people. If you look back at verse 2, it says, This people... They were described as this people. In verse 12, they are now called the remnant of the people. Right? As a result of their repentance, God returns to a loving covenant relationship with his people. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by commission of the Lord to the people saying, I am with you declares the Lord. What greater encouragement could ever be stated than to hear God say, I am with you. It's such grace. And more importantly, here we can say that it's unmerited grace. Why? Because they had simply obeyed in their heart. Not a single tree had fallen or a stone placed. 
They had done no work at all that could have been seen as earning favor with God. Haggai preached. God granted the gift of repentance. He changed their heart and they obeyed. How do we know God was the one who changed their heart? Verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius. God stirred up their hearts. It was the spirit working in them that caused them to obey. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 starts the third oracle or message from God from Haggai. Here what we're going to see is the people started working on the temple but quickly became discouraged. They needed their faith to be strengthened in the promises of God. What promise? Promise that he was with them. They needed to be strengthened. Building the temple, it's hard work. There are not many laborers. They just couldn't see the value in their efforts. Many times, isn't that the picture of our ministries? Right? The work is hard. Doesn't always seem like there are enough people to help. Evangelism can be difficult. And sometimes it's hard to see God's plan in it all. So chapter 2, verse 1 says, On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem like to you like nothing in comparison? Haggai's asking the question that everybody else wanted to ask, but wasn't asking. Who among you is old enough to remember the former temple, Solomon's temple, in all of its material glory? You can read in Ezra where the older people were wailing loudly because they were just devastated at what was left of the temple. Haggai asked them, so what do you see now? Doesn't seem like much, does it? You can picture a beleaguered and discouraged people. And then there's verse 4. Haggai says, but now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Right? God can bring as much gold as he wants, and he will, and we'll look at that in a minute. God says, I am with you. That is what brings true glory to the temple. It's God's presence. What makes it glorious is the fact that God is with his people again. They need their faith strengthened. They need the faith to look beyond their current circumstances and trust in the promise of God. They needed to be encouraged to look beyond a task that seemed impossible. Because God was there with them, it was going to be okay. He will handle the details. Verse 5 says, As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. God is literally standing in their midst. The same way the pillar of cloud was standing at the entrance of the tent of meeting in Exodus 33. God had made a promise or a covenant with them. Because of this, they can and should have complete assurance that he is with them. And because of this, God says, do not fear. 
Verse 6 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more, in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. This verse was quoted by the writer of Hebrews in 12.26, where he explained it as having a future reality. We can read in Exodus that when God spoke at Sinai, the earth shook. Now God says, in a little while, I'm not only going to shake the earth, but the heavens and the sea and the dry land. The explanation by the writer of Hebrews is that one day God is going to shake everything, and the only things that are remaining will be those things that have eternal value. All else is going to be destroyed. Verse 7 says, And I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. This is material glory. It's gold, it's silver, it's cedar, it's other treasures. We know this because that is the wealth of the nations. Verse 8 says, the silver is mine, the gold is mine. When God is ready, he will shake the nations and bring his silver and his gold to the temple. But then there's verse 9. It says, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This had to be an almost overwhelming statement for these Jews to hear, especially because they've already struggled to look past their current circumstances. The temple was ultimately completed about five years later. It was considered Herod's temple, but that is not the primary focus of this verse. The temple was always just a foreshadowing of a greater temple to come, right? The perfect dwelling place of God and man, the perfect place of sacrifice, Jesus said, but I say to you, something greater than the temple is here. Matthew 12, 6. Our Lord said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. John 2. Paul also said in Ephesians 2, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This building, this holy temple is being fitted together, is the church. The Jews were obedient by putting stone upon stone to build the temple. We're obedient when we evangelize. And sinners are brought to God by the saving knowledge of the truth, and they are added as living stones into his church. 2 Peter 2.5 says, You also as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Notice what God says next in verse 9. He says, And in this place I shall give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. There's only one place where true peace has been given by God. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him, to reconcile all things to himself, having made what? Peace through the blood of his cross. Yes, we agree in the promise made through Haggai that the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former because of Jesus Christ. Verse 10 begins the fourth oracle. Verse 10 says, on the 24th 
of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests for a ruling. If a man carries a holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his fold, or cooked food, wine, oil, or any other food, will it become holy? And the priest answers and says, No. Then Haggai, Haggai said, If one who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered and said, It will become unclean. Then Haggai said, answered and said, So is this people, so is this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. So Haggai's asking the priests a series of questions. And these are easy questions for the priest to answer. Verse 12, essentially it says, if something is holy and touches something that is unclean, will the unclean thing become holy? And the answer is obviously no. Meaning it will not become holy. Verse 13 essentially says that if something is unclean and touches something else, will that thing become unclean? And the, the answer is yes, it will become unclean. The point here is holiness is not contagious, but uncleanness is contagious. We've, heard, we've all heard it explained this way. Put a drop of cyanide in a glass of water and the whole glass is poisonous. Not as poisonous as a glass of pure cyanide, but nonetheless, the whole glass is contaminated. Put a drop of clean water in a glass of cyanide and you still have a completely poisonous glass of cyanide. The cleanness of the drop of water is not transferred. Cleanness, or in this case, holiness, is not contagious. And in verse 14, Haggai says, so, it, so is this people and so is this nation before me, de declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. God is saying every work they do is unclean. Without a proper sacrifice for sin, there can be no possibility of cleanness. And Haggai didn't want the people to think that just because they were becoming religious again, and rebuilding the temple, that somehow the work would make them clean. The previous generations had a temple, they had sacrifices, and they were carried off to Babylon by fish hooks, says Amos 4.2. It's not about a finished temple, it's about a sacrifice that is brought with the right motivations and the right heart. You know what this section in Haggai teaches? It, it teaches the doctrine of total depravity. Right? It, if you never thought about going to Haggai 2, verses 11 and 14 to teach the doctrine of total depravity, now you can. It's right there. In verse 15, we continue to see that God's blessings are all by grace. Verse 15. But now, do consider from this day onward, before one stone is placed on another in the temple of the Lord. From that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures... There would be only 10. And when one came to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you at, and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew, mildew, and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. But do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is the seed still in your barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit, yet from this day on, I will bless you. God says, before even one stone was placed on another in the temple, yet from this day on, I will bless you. 
You have repented. You've obeyed from the heart. And God says, from this day onward, I will bless you. From the very day the temple was founded in verse 18, God began to bless his people. They couldn't earn their salvation from sin any more than we can. Salvation for the Old Testament saints was by grace alone, through faith alone, and the promises of the coming Messiah alone. The final oracle begins in verse 20. As important as the temple was for the Jewish nation, so was the kingly line of David. God had promised that one day, David's son, an offspring of David, would sit on the throne forever. Not for a long time, but forever. And there was currently no king in Israel. The question that people could could have been asking is, has God's promise failed? So beginning in verse 20, it says, Then the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of the kingdoms of the nations, and I will overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of another. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. It turns out that Zerubbabel is an extremely important figure. Just as the temple pointed forward towards its fulfillment in Christ, so did God keeping his covenant promise through Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was not a king, but he was the grandson of a king of Israel, the last king of Israel at the time of the deportation, which was Jeconiah. So finally, let's just turn over to the Gospel of Matthew. It's only a few pages, just the first chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew 1.1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 11. And to Josiah were born Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, to Jeconiah was born Shealtiel. And to Shealtiel, Zerubbabel. How cool is that? And to Zerubbabel was born Abihud, and to Abihud, Eliakim, and to Eliakim, Azor, and to Azor was born Zadok, and to Zadok, Akim, and to Akim, Eliud, and to Eliud was born Eliezer, and to Eliezer, Matham, and to Matham, Jacob, and to Jacob was born Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Haggai allows us to see that God was faithful to his promise of preserving the kingly line of David. And we see, we see here that it went straight through Zerubbabel to the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is the book of Haggai about? The book is about Jesus Christ. The better king who will reign on the throne of David forever. The perfect temple where God dwelt with man the perfect and final sacrifice for sinful humanity. We can look into this book and see its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. 
the promises of God finding their fulfillment in Christ. We're all very familiar with the words of our Lord in Luke 24 when he's walking on the road to Emmaus, where he says, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe. Believe in what? In all that the prophets have spoken. Of this passage, Ligon Duncan said, the Lord Jesus is utterly confident that if they had listened to what the Old Testament prophets had said, they would have heard about him, about his person, about his work, and about his promises. By God's grace, may he grow this church, adding new members and fashioning each one of us into perfectly formed living stones for his holy temple and for his glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, your word is sufficient, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would, we would embrace it in its totality from beginning to end, Lord. All scripture is profitable. We thank you for it. May your spirit work in us, Lord, to bind it to our hearts. May it be on our hearts so that it's on our lips this week. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.